There's more than enough money sloshing around the world to solve all of our problems. But with most of this money in the hands of the wealthy and powerful, and with the rules skewed in their favour, it sometimes feels impossible to mobilise money for good. How do we best imagine a future where money is put to good use to serve humanity in the long term? What if we gave money an ethical and moral imperative and tasked it with both the long-term well-being of humanity and the ecological health of the planet we all depend on? Today's guest has been asking these questions for a long time. He's a pioneer in the area of clean money, money that has its purpose refashioned for good. Our changemaker chat is with Joel Solomon. Joel is the co-author of the book The Clean Money Revolution, Reinventing Power, Purpose and Capitalism. He is the chair and co-founder of Renewal Funds, Canada's largest mission venture capital firm, and he's been active in the charitable funding of environmental issues for decades. Today we consider what would happen if a different set of ethics, values and goals were put in place to direct the flow of money. We posit a future where finance, profit and purpose are aligned and see this already happening, for example, with the divestment of fossil fuels. And then we ask, how would you make it happen? And who else is already making it happen? And what can we learn? Money making for good. Who doesn't want that? So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. This episode is sponsored by Bank of Australia. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Joel, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So, I want to I want to just kick off by um, I just read your fantastic book, Clean Money Revolution, and in that book, you actually use the word changemakers way before the podcast was invented. Like, I don't know how you possibly <laughs> came across that language, right? But you you tell yeah, right. a story. You tell a story about um, a moment of of luck, well, of disappointment and luck, where you inherited a large amount of money. And then you said that unlike most people who are fortunate enough to be able to have resources, that you wanted to use your wealth to become a change maker and a social entrepreneur. And I was wondering if you could tell us, what do you do that makes you a change maker? Mm, good question. Well, I want to say that I was, I, I, I grew up in the South of the United States in the 50s and 60s. So I'm in my mid-60s. I was the beneficiary of a successful entrepreneur father, child of an immigrant, classic American story, probably Australian as well, who simply wanted to make a good living, take care of his family, and be successful, be a good citizen. My mother is uh, still alive, uh, about to reach 90 years old, but an active artistic photographer who's traveled the world and always asked a lot of questions. And Throughout my childhood and uh, growing up during the Jim Crow era in the southern states, uh, civil rights uh, opening up, uh, assassinations of important leaders, the Vietnam War, and et cetera, 
and with a mother who was encouraging me to question authority and other things, I came through the 60s and into inheriting some money with a lot of attitude about things that needed to change in the world. And I felt if I were given the privilege to have a few million dollars of assets, which it was at the time, that I should figure out how to dedicate that towards social change work long term and devote my life to that. I've done it in a unique and unusual way, maybe not the way we typically define those terms. I wanted to become an activist inside capitalism, both trying to create models that many people could follow to pay attention to where their money comes from, what it does to people and places, and how we use that money and how we affect people in the future, but also to be engaged in change-making work from politics to public policy to activism of all kinds, including also, again, in the social entrepreneur sector. Mm. How do we be effective, make things happen, and do it with a view towards the long term and what really matters? Indeed. So my experience of social movements is is probably not dissimilar from your perspective, which is that a lot of people who do social change, a lot of traditional change makers think a lot about organized people. But actually, when we think about power, it's not just organized people, it's also organized money. How do you think that organized money and being able to have a, a sophisticated understanding of money enables you to be, and change makers as a whole, to be more effective at, at implementing change in the world? Well, for better and worse, the way a lot of things are happening around power globally is that concentrated money is running the show, and concentrated money is calling a lot of the shots. Progressives and people who have other points of view about how that should be done tend to be weak in skills around money, understanding how it works, where it comes from, how people create large wealth, and why it tends to keep concentrating and the rules keep shifting for those with power and money to get more power and money and to put the burden further on everyone else. So I found that in organizations and political movements and activist movements, that the lack of skills in truly understanding how and why all of that works so effectively is a big, big disadvantage. So the fact that I was brought up to be trained to be an entrepreneur and be in business, but had a different point of view than, uh, let's say, I guess, classic, uh, just go and go find your way to make some money, make a lot of it, and then uh, maybe give a little bit away in the future. I felt that it was better to try to distribute these skills, pass them on, be supportive of change makers, since we're going to use that term, change makers of all kinds, for-profit, not-for-profit, citizens, politicos, etc. But the point of the question you asked me is, we need to understand money and how it works so that we can turn it towards the things that we think are the most important. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, the book that you've written, Clean Money Revolution, is a sort of treatise about the forms of both the goal of what we can achieve if we are able to act with a different kind of understanding around money and then the strategies for how we get there. Tell, Tell our listeners a little bit about that both the goal of what of what clean money is and also some of the key levers you think um, are likely to take us there. The simple goal is let's 
do more good and less harm with our money. Radical. <laughs> let's yeah, right. Let's let's try to understand how the things that we consume and the act, actions, activities we do in our daily lives that there are actually long stories behind that. People have given their lives uh, or they are put in very difficult conditions in order to create all the products that we consume, whether those are the tangible ones, we wear them, we sleep in them, we, that kind of thing, or whether they are simply numbers on a piece of paper that tell us where our assets might be, where our savings account is, uh, which bank we're in and what that bank does. The more that we know about that and the more that we take responsibility for it, then in turn we can make good choices about how we use that money. That's the simple part. I need to be sure that the best I can do in this very complicated world, I am making choices that do less harm and making even more interesting ones that do more good. So today, I'm actually now a couple of decades into moving into what's what we call mission venture capital. And so we've invested for many years in organic foods, soil therefore soil protection and care, and climate technologies, various environmental technologies that uh, reduce climate impacts and make things more efficient, less wasteful, etc. So we have a lot of choices about money, and we could and can and do create organizations that have a different set of ethics and a different set of goals, values, and intentions about who's going to benefit from the outputs of our organizations. That's There's a kind of a generalized sketch of it. Um, there are infinitely cre- infinite and many creative ways to go about this. And it all starts with simply asking the question and trying to understand all these products and services and who we're doing business with and what kind of organizations we create and how we model better ways to use money uh, in everything that we do. Awesome. So one of the things we like to do on Changemakers is to understand the person behind the goal, right? And I'm keen, you mentioned a little bit really early on some of the elements of your story. I want to dwell on some of those elements now. Can you tell us a little bit, you had business experience and you had non-business experience before you had the opportunity to work out where you were going to invest. What were some of the early, in addition to your parents who you described, what were some of the early teachers that that you had that set you on this pathway to to want to transform how we think about money? Two things that um, may not on the surface uh, make this obvious, but that uh, major experiences of my life were to see a series, I'm going to say three experiences, to see a series of human beings who were moved and guided to try to do better and to do it in a large way. The first had to do with politics. Uh, My family as Jews in the southern United States thought it was very important to be present, visible, and take stands about political uh, choices. I say ignore politics at our peril. Uh, as difficult and challenging as that may be to get involved with. But that's where a lot of decisions in society and about the commons happen. So I ended up getting involved with Jimmy Carter. Uh, I had intended to work for, let's say, a more progressive candidate at the time, 
But as a teenager, in my late teens, I had an opportunity to go to work for then-Governor Jimmy Carter uh, in Washington, D.C., in, in a project he took on to go and support Democratic Party candidates for Congress and Senate and governor around the United States. Fairly soon, I was told that Governor Carter was going to run for president and did I want to get involved. And I did that. And I watched somebody, a pretty obscure political office holder who had been a one-term governor of Georgia, go from zero in the polls to president of the United States over a period of a couple of years. I was able to read a strategy paper that was written earlier that told how it would happen and how based on growing racism in the South and a candidate named George Wallace, who had been governor of Alabama, uh, that Carter was going to leverage bigger forces and would end up winning the Democratic nomination and then could win the presidency. That happened. I got to have to insert a personal story, which is about that time I was diagnosed with a genetic family kidney disease that came through my father's lineage. Most everyone had died from it. And I was told that there was nothing much I could do about it and that I would either die soon or live a long time. That motivated me to get on it now. What do I really care about? And what I, I didn't think I was going to have a big vision, like go run for president or that kind of thing. But I wanted to be around and support people who could carry that level of vision and I could be inspired by. So second was I ended up with a uh, – I, I went on seek and search after that diagnosis. What am I going to do with my life if it's going to be short? What do I want to look back on from my deathbed that I had done with my life? I ended up – caretaking an orca research laboratory in a remote uh, location on the coast of British Columbia in Canada, working for the man who had been part of early Greenpeace and convinced – he had been the trainer of the orcas at, a, at an aquarium in Vancouver, and he had some experiences with orcas that he decided that they were sentient beings and they had no business being in captivity. He held a press conference demanding they be released. He was fired. Paul Spong became the person who got Greenpeace to take on the whale campaign. So I watched a group of very unlikely heroes and sheroes uh, actually succeed in keeping the largest brained mammal on the planet alive for some more decades through direct action and using uh, uh, visual, you know, dramatic visuals and, and putting their rubber boat in front of Russian uh, – harpoon trawlers uh, as they fired into uh, big whales. And those images went all around the world. Later, I got involved with some of those other Greenpeace founders. That, that, that happened in Vancouver. And they did a very distributed model, by the way, where they didn't attempt to control it. And Greenpeace became a uh, a grassroots uh, sp sprouting all over the world. But some of the people who'd been part of early Greenpeace had gotten involved with uh, native rights issues, particularly in the U.S., later in Canada. And a group of them were trying to figure out what they should really do next that would be long-term meaning, and they founded an educational retreat facility called Hollyhock on a small island, again, north of Vancouver. The people that I met there who were a combination of environmental activists and human potential movement experts and professionals designed a facility with the intention 
that it would support people attempting to make the world better with personal skills, leadership skills, uh, eventually business skills, activist skills, and everyday leadership types of supports to attempt to influence a wave of of step up and take care of business folks uh, and provide a safe place to to learn, work on that, hold retreats, gathering strategy sessions, et cetera. And so those influences gave me a new view of what was possible yeah, I know. relative I wanna, to the very traditional one I had been brought up in. And I want to dwell on that just a little. I was going to ask you later, I'm going to ask you now. One of the things that is striking about your work, and, and I wonder if it's partly because of the impact that your illness had on your perspective, is that you're a real, you know, if, if you're going to change the world first, change yourself kind of person. Um, the, where right. there's a deep intersection between the qualities of leadership held interpersonally and the the presence and practice of your politics on the world. You really seem to practice that as a, at a deep level. And I, I would say that both in the, the world of change making, in the not-for-profit world, but also in the business world, that disconnect between held values and practice seems to be one of the biggest problems that we have. How did that arise for you and how, and I guess, how important is it for you in terms of understanding change making? What became clear to me as a bit of an angry, disaffected young man was, first of all, on a health basis, it was going to be much better for me to aim towards joy and happiness and feeling aligned with what I really cared about and got the confusion, the doubts, the societal influences in better shape and learn some tools with which to keep myself experiencing this as a somewhat, I'll, I'll go a little further here, it's as a somewhat ecstatic experience that life is actually possibly can be an, an ecstatic experience. And as I got exposed to that, that there were actual, there's science, there's uh, practice, there's, there's uh, teachers, there's wisdom schools, there are all kinds of tools available to us to be better friends of ourself first, and be a little more knowledgeable about how the human system can work, so that we can take on practices, uh, practitioners, teachers. And get ourselves in environments that are going to bring forth the best of us. And that those, for those of us, that is the really biggest privilege. Money is a, is a quite good one. Power is a good one. But finding the tools and the access to how to make ourselves more effective humans and feel better about being here and feel more useful gives us long-term capacity. And so that's a key part of what I learned to practice and it's now, uh, you know, I, I have my bad days, I have my good days, but but I do have tools to rely on that I think give me a certain kind of resilience. And I think we all need that. And that's why a facility like Hollyhock, I believe, is so important to social movement people. Mm. And it's interesting because uh, your journey towards um, thinking differently about money, what I was struck by is how it was in retreat with other people in deep conversation with other people that strategy that the first strategies like social venture the social venture network and the emerging ideas around how to do clean money in the 90s they came about when you put into practice those ideas around retreat stepping back slow thinking how did it emerge 
So the fairly visionary people that put together Social Venture Network and related organizations saw a more holistic picture about money and knew that money actually just represents the embodied labor of humans and extraction from natural resources of the planet. And how we do that and what we then do with what comes from it and how we set up those systems has been highly exploitive and highly damaging. And I believe that the movement that, as far as I know, probably started, well, probably started earlier, but certainly through the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a rising, while a kind of greed was on a big roll and becoming a, a dominant force, there were other people that were thinking about other other forms of how the marketplace could work, how humans could live together, govern together. And so there was a time of really great experimentation. And the early influence of people like Ben and Jerry with the ice cream that they said, 1% of all of our profits will uh, be given away and, and go to charity, was an inspiration. I got involved in starting a company and I, with a partner, and I thought, 1% of profits is beautiful, but you, they could change their mind or they could die and it get changed. And so we started a company and put 5% of it into charity upon founding. And from there, I started thinking about all the creativity that is possible when you design a business. You and I talked before the interview about some of the organiz- some of the folks that have built very large people-powered organizations around, uh, uh, first of all, just around shared issues. But many of those have gone on to create business products, be it rooftop solar mm. for consumers or selling uh, uh, renewable energy credit, uh, uh, renewable energy credits to consumers of electricity so that when we buy our electricity, we're actually fueling a whole bunch of renewable energy. And there have been some very clever uh, businesses started by activists these days that are creating pretty substantial amounts of money that can go into all kinds of, uh, of, of issues. So if you think about the fact that money is, I think, neutral, and the idea of exchange of goods and services is something that's happened since the existence of human beings, then it gets to be the rules and regulations, that's government and the people that are supposed to help us look after the commons, and then what your own practices are, how you treat your employees, how you understand your supply chain, how you uh, keep your consumers uh, informed honestly about what's involved in the product or service that you're selling them. And once you go down this train, this track, you start thinking about, well, I put money in a bank. Where does the money go? What do they do with the money? Money doesn't just get taken back to a big vault and then it sits there until you come and get it. It goes off into international markets pretty quickly. So as you think about the financial system and how money moves around, uh, you might you, you might be inspired, but you might more likely be aggravated, and you might want to be part of a reform movement or something even edgier than that that can figure out new systems and new structures about how to uh, create the marketplace that causes the exchange of goods and services that, for better or worse, is necessary with over 7 billion people on the planet heading to 10 billion fairly soon. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is so difficult about thinking about using money for our values is in a way, you know, in a democracy, we have the the practice of accountability, 
right? That, you know, the, the people making the decisions ultimately will be responsible and accountable to the population that they're said to serve. And if they are terrible, one hopes that there will be an electoral process that can can change the representatives. It's an accountability relationship. How do you hold money to account? Well, as I've said just a bit ago, the first is for yourself. The second is if you see egregious practices, uh, so there are interventions that you, you can organize around policy issues. You can influence the people who hold the authority to do the voting that decides those things. You can do the same thing that people looking out for their self-interest, their financial interests do to uh, lobby or to uh, organize to influence how legislation happens and how regulations happen. You can model and you can be front edge on showing people how to create businesses or co-ops or not-for-profits, social enterprises, any, any kind of however you organize yourself – to uh, sell a product or service and then do all of the mechanics that it takes to create that. And then if you're lucky enough and good enough, have some profits that can be then reinvested in things that matter uh, to you in one way or another. So it's really first understanding. In my mind, it's understanding that there's actually some, it's natural to trade goods and services. I think the very probably very far back in human existence, I need salt, you need dried fish, um, or you or I need copper, and you need something else. You know that 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 I might have, and then money gets invented to serve as a representation of those things. So you can use money as a third party to then have a tool with which you can go somewhere else and purchase what you think you need. Um, these are very simple principles. And we should not give over authority about them to people that we think are doing damaging, destructive activities. And we need to hold ourselves to account for our own practices and behaviors so that we are doing more good and less harm. Yeah. That's... That's the basics. <laughs> and there's the basics. so many people, like your book, Clean Money Revolution, lists dozens and dozens and dozens of stories of people who are, who are doing who are doing fantastic things um, like you mentioned earlier particularly around clean energy and solar and so forth like lots and lots of examples but I wanted to pose to you um, I guess the the skeptical eye right the devil's advocate yeah. argument which is that you know I think there are there are lots of corporations doing extraordinarily good stuff there are some other corporations who are much more um, interested in 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 whitewashing or greenwashing their work and using the language of clean money but not actually necessarily doing the practices of, of clean money. You know, for instance, BlackRock, you know, it's the largest asset manager in the world. Larry Flint last year came out and said that his company was going to focus on uh, delivering a, a social purpose and making a positive contribution to society. It sounded fantastic. It even agitated financial markets. But at the same time, BlackRock is the largest investor in coal plant development. And, yeah. you know, his company actually is, 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 needs to shift dramatically if our world is going to, to be what we want it to be in 30 years' time. How do we 
Um, how do we deal with the issue of not walking the talk when it comes to the practice of, of clean money? We have a really difficult challenge back to this uh, almost 8 billion people going on 10 and perhaps further than that. And the level of the level of infrastructure that has been created around effectively extraction and exploitation and concentration of financial resources at the top. Uh, it's not, we're not in an easy pickle. Human nature, unfortunately, doesn't all go out and do spiritual practices and psychological and emotional cleanup of themselves and figure out what integrity is and how to live a life that's aligned with what your deepest values are. Even those of us who spend our lives caring about those issues and challenging some of these topics don't always do such a good job with our own life and how we treat each other and how we treat ourselves. So we have a very difficult, uh, perhaps metaphysical <laughs> challenge. We certainly have a challenge of civilization and how it has played itself out and where we are today. Uh, I hope that the activities of people that go into entrepreneurship, that create not, not-for-profits that influence uh, public policy and, and important issues, and that each one of us, first in our own life, cleans up our own act and pays attention to the things that we can influence. And then as we band together around organizations, issues, uh, we move into political campaign season, we decide whether or not we will actually step up and do the hard work of being elected leaders, whether we'll go into government on the inside as non-elected people, but who are dedicated to the public interest. And we do not have easy answers to any of this. And the first challenge is human nature. The second one, in my because human nature is, is only as good as the experiences and the resilience of individual humans and then groups of us to actually do better. But the second place I'd like to challenge has to do with our spiritual and major global religion institutions and how they have taken the spot of those who should counsel who who are in the position that are given the authority to counsel us on what's right, what's wrong, what's a good life, um, and effectively are blessing really bad practices. So one thing I think will happen out of wherever these next few decades take us, uh, maybe a beautiful, beautiful ending, maybe a chaotic, uh, bumpy uh, road, um, we are going to need some kind of shared understanding of the meaning of life and how we hold each other to account for it that is a, takes a pretty solid amount of human enlightenment because we have so much diversity, we think so differently, we have many different motivations and contextual circumstances. It's possible that this won't end in a pretty way or it, won't, it will have to go through some very serious bumps. We have reached a peak of one version of the industrialization and commodification of the planet and of each other that may or may not have an easy way to kind of mellow out and make room for everyone and uh, just work smoothly. That means we are probably facing a pretty bumpy period ahead. As many of us who can keep clear, back to our personal practices, our steadiness, our, our ability to really think carefully about things and be flexible and adaptive is going to be crucial. 
But we will need governance systems. We will need uh, market systems. We will need a lot of things that are bigger than any one of us or even group of us are able to control. This is perhaps the cosmic joke on on, uh, the human species, that all of the great tools and skills we've been given with brain power, with uh, opposable thumbs, um, uh, language sophistication, ability to invent all kinds of wondrous new things, where is our moral, ethical, spiritual clarity about what we're here for and how we're supposed to live our lives and how we are going to model and influence others to do the same so that we have a safe, clean, fair future. And so that's the big challenge. Yeah, I think it is. And when and it's terrifying at the moment. You look around the world, it's just terrifying. But you know, we've got a lot of people um, who will be listening to this this episode wondering okay, so what do we do? And those people are probably more likely to be community activists or interested in grassroots social change or capable of grassroots social change, although the, we've got a bunch yes. of exciting people li- who listen. What would be the, the your your message to them, given all of the work that you've done over, over, uh, over a very busy life? What should people focus on if they want to avert the the dangerous empty future that you suggest could happen if we if we're not careful you're asking me a very very large question obviously and i'm uh flattered and overwhelmed to <laughs> try to give a, a good answer to this but what i go back to is it has to start with me and i have to understand what made me how i am psychologically and emotionally in particular but then other factors like skin color and gender and all kinds of circumstances now as we understand more and more complexities of human existence but i then i need to go there first and figure out what for me is an ethical moral spiritually uh, empowering life and intention i'm going to be dead at some point, I hope that what I do while I'm alive leaves a possibility for future generations to be able to get smarter and better at this so that we've moved things along, at least protected the possibility of that, and even better, we've been part of a number of solutions that create resilience and infrastructure that make it possible that future people will be able to work through this. I like to think of myself and all of us and every listener here as ancestors of what's coming. And as those ancestors, you can think forward right now and consider what it would be like to study this time period we're in. As an individual, there's a fair amount I can do on myself, my family, my closest people. If I decide to become an influencer that has a bigger megaphone or has a, an organization that can, that can you know, spread the word and model good behaviors and things like that, then I'm going to do better and the future is going to have a chance. And they may look back and say, these people faced an unbelievably challenging situation that they and their predecessors and our ancestors created for them probably out of good intention and just trying to put a roof over their heads, feed their families and have a decent life. But things got out of control. And some people started to create models, started to focus in geographies and take responsibility for the basics of decent 
society and how we live here together, decent governance, etc. The ability to actually put rules and regulations on the commons, which are about the long-term well-being of future generations. If we were to think about future generations in every act that we do, and we know in the future blockchain or other technologies are going to track everything we did with money, which will therefore show pretty much all of our actions. And if we think about what that might look like ourselves, imagine ourselves in the deathbed and we look back on our life. Did we do everything we knew how to do? And do we keep improving ourselves? Listen to feedback, listen to the, see the response in the world and dedicate ourselves to the responsibility that our job is to be sure the long-term future of humanity and this whole beautiful Garden of Eden have as good a chance as possible to keep getting better. It's not simple. I don't know the answer, but that practice is part of it, I think. Wow. <laughs> this feels very full-on. But it's true. It's true. We're going to keep you. It's big picture time. It's big picture time for us all. What, what else are we going to do? Yeah. There's nobody else who's going to take care of us. Yeah. It's, it's on us. Yeah. Well, Joel, it's been a, a delight and also ominous uh, to, to have this conversation with you today. And um, thanks for, have, for coming on to Changemakers. May hope and optimism and well-being and beauty and love and carry forward <laughs> and higher powers of some kind. Uh, some, you know, may hope that there is something in this life force that helps us get our act together. Yeah. And may everybody get to enjoy a good future. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Amanda Tattersall and Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Walkera. This episode is sponsored by Bank of Australia. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.